Hey, everybody, welcome to Sunday School, a brand new Bible study podcast brought to you from The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined here at Sunday School by my good friend, Dr. Scott Powell, our Sunday School teacher, to talk about the Gospel of Mark. In this episode, Scott will talk about Mark chapters 3 through 5 and then chapter 6, verses 1 through 30. Scott will explain why the Gospel of Mark is sometimes considered the Gospel of Discipleship. We'll also talk about the parable of the sower and the seed, and then we'll talk about a really interesting question. Do Catholics sometimes give more weight to the Blessed Virgin Mary than even Jesus does? We here at Sunday School have asked Pillar co-founder Ed Condon to record the readings for each episode so that you can better engage with Scott's commentary. If you've already done the readings, you've already checked out Mark 3 through 5 and chapter 6, verses 1 through 30, you could skip ahead to about the 16-minute mark in this episode. But if not, here's Ed with Mark chapters 3 through 5 and chapter 6, verses 1 through 30. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out, and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed round him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting round him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, 
Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell in the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to the light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up, and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, 
and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But when he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God not to torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away, and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And the great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For, she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? At this his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. And he called the twelve, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in, and immediately with haste to the king, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. 
When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. excited to jump back into the Gospel of Mark today. I am too. I really enjoyed um, what we learned last week in the first couple chapters of Mark, and I am really um, psyched to keep going. I feel, Scott, like I am uh, sitting at your feet as you, or that we are walking along the road to Emmaus, and you are opening up the scriptures before me, and my heart is burning within me. This is I feel like these are terrible, (laughs) these are dangerous analogies for you to create. They are, indeed. They are terrible, but they're not safe. They are not safe. But see, this is how much I need instruction in scriptures. (laughs) Look at these analogies I'm wantonly tossing out there. You should talk to Jesus. (laughs) I know a guy. But you're opening up the scripture, and the word of God is alive, and therefore when we open the scripture, don't we encounter the living Christ? Yeah, yeah, of course. No, we do. We do. That's that's fair. There's a scripture scholar. Like, yeah, we do. But let's get let's no, get no, to the no. Greek. No, no, jeez. So Scott, no Greek today. Well, maybe what, some Greek. What are we re- What are we talking about today? Yeah. So last time we talked uh, a lot of introductory stuff, kind of tried to set the scene. And the thing that I think is most important that we keep in mind as we go into these uh, first few chapters is remembering number one that we have to remember this is written presumably, at least according to the tradition of the church, this is written from Peter's point of view. So this is right. the Gospel of Peter because Mark is Peter's scribe. Scribe. Yeah. Whether exactly. that means you said whether that means he's sort of taking dictation from Peter or right. whether he's recounting what Peter taught him. Right. One could go or some way, mixture of or both. some mixture of both. But this is the perspective of Peter because Mark is the scribe, the scribe and disciple of Peter. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah, disciple. I was going to say not just the scribe. He's not just an employed. But um, yeah, he he decided, Peter calls him. Uh, uses this beloved discipleship language, uh-huh. and so for that reason, you see a lot of discipleship stuff in this book. Also, because that the reason for that is yes, Mark is a disciple of, of Peter, who is a disciple of Jesus. But um, it's the discipleship gospel in a lot of ways because Peter is presumably in prison, facing down his death soon. But he's also writing to a community of either persecuted or soon-to-be-persecuted Christians in Rome. Right. Who need to know what it means to the, the cost of discipleship, so to speak. Right. So this is an intense gospel. I, I mentioned, I think, last time the word immediately, mm-hmm. at least in the original Greek, is mentioned 41 times. Wow. Um, which some translations of the Bible take some out and try to smooth it to make it sound less annoying. But Mark wants it to be urgent. He wants yeah. you to feel that. So a lot of discipleship things. And where I want to kind of get into the story is, so we already talked about chapter two, but chapter two and three are stories about conflict. Mm-hmm. And where kind of Mark drops you into the story is a lot of conflict. So Jesus mm-hmm. is in conflict with religious leaders. Jesus is in conflict with demons. Jesus is in conflict actually in chapter four with weather. Yeah. Um, and he's shown to be in conflict because, again, this is written to a community who is in conflict mm. and they have to be wondering to themselves, man, if God is really in charge of the world, if I've really followed the right Messiah, because there's different options that right. we, we all have options, right? Who are you going to give your life to? So in conflict internally or with the world, the, the Christians, the in Christians Rome? in Rome, um, probably both. Okay. So, so this is really the Lord throws down as a witness of how that, I think so. So externally, because I think the Neronian, the, the persecutions of the emperor Nero mm-hmm. are either started or about to, uh-huh. And I think that's causing, like it does for all of us, presumably, an internal conflict sure. of, man, am, why am I getting so beat up? Why is the world so hard? Why right. does God not like me? Has right. he abandoned me? Has yeah. he turned his back? Mm-hmm. So all of those things are, are kind of playing in here. So lots of conflict going on. But where I want to drop us into the story is in chapter three with a particular conflict story that I find really interesting. Because it, it sort of um, gives us a great deal of insight into some of the people who are coming after Jesus. So I'm in chapter three, verse one. It says this. 
So again, he entered the synagogue and there was a man here, a man there who had a withered hand and they, this is the ominous they, right? Dun, dun. Who's the they? It's these religious leaders, presumably. I don't know if they're exactly Pharisees, but the religious leaders who are trying to find reason, uh, they, they don't trust this guy. The sense of, and they watched him is, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, in the, um, this is clearly the analogy of a dad with little kids, but um, <laughs> you know, in the, when Snow White is running through the forest in the beginning and there's just all those eyes. Oh yeah, the this eyes. This is kind of what I feel like The right eyes here. are a classic motif yeah, right? Right, uh-huh. in Disney films. Yeah. Yeah, and in the Gospels. Wow, that, I, that changes my... You know, there, you know there's certain images that like right. just get stuck with you? Yeah. I feel like that's going to That's be what I feel like as the Lord enters the center. There's worse. all those sort of around the pillars, just those <laughs> those eyes from from uh, from Snow White. Wow, yeah, okay. So so they are all watched. So, so here's Jesus in the synagogue. Here is a man who has a withered hand, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an, an infirmity. So Jesus, in addition to being in, con- being in conflict with religious leaders and um, demoniacs and weather, he is in conflict with um, the fallout of hum- human sin. Yeah. The, the world is broken, the brokenness of the world. And I'm not, you know, I don't think we're suggesting that, well, this man, because he was sinful, has this external problem. But the fact that the world is broken, that's what Jesus is contending with. Yeah. A broken world that he's trying to set right. Mm-hmm. So there's a man who has a withered hand. And it says they, the eyeballs watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Note what Mark just told you. They watched Jesus to see whether he would suspend the laws of nature and perform a miracle on right. the Sabbath. So that they could accuse him of violating what is, from a canon lawyer's perspective, a merely ecclesiastical <laughs> law, right? Don't do a healing on the Sabbath. Well, yeah. Is I- that fair? Yeah, it is. But I mean, note that they don't seem to care whether right. he can perform a miracle right, exactly. or suspend it's the just laws that of he'll do it then. Yes. Is yeah. he going to do it at the wrong time? Right. What time is it? Is yeah. he allowed to do it yet? Yeah. So, and it says verse three, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, it, he said to them, the eyeballs, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. So he's trying to, to trap them in their own um, litigiousness, I suppose. Not, I, I, I get hesitant. I, I have a the, little bit of sympathy here I for the they. And I the, the reason is because it, it seems like, okay, so if I were waiting for a Messiah, and you talked last time about the, uh, the Pharisees kind of being, really wanting to ensure that they kept the law, that they really yes. wanted to ensure that they did what God wanted them to do. Yes. And if I were in that boat and I was waiting for a Messiah, I might think, well, when the Messiah comes he definitely won't be somebody who's breaking the law. And so we can sort of discern whether something is from God or not from God by the keeping of the law. I mean, I feel a little bit of sympathy from that because I might think about something in the contemporary church that way. Yeah, it's true. The The problem with it, and this is where the analogy, I, I want to be careful with the analogy because I think the analogy sure. breaks down. Okay, good. And this is, I think a lot of people get very confused by this. Jesus isn't breaking any biblical commands. Okay. He's not breaking biblical laws. Right. The, the problem of the Pharisees, problem or not, the, the mentality of the Pharisees was, okay, the Lord has abandoned us. Mm-hmm. That, that seems the, to be the conclusion of everybody in Jesus' time. The presence of the Lord was not believed to be in the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. Right. They saw the presence leave before the destruction. They're waiting for him to come back. Right. After waiting for however many hundreds of years it's been, the conclusion is, okay, well, we lost God because we broke the law. Right. How do we get him back? Keep the law. Maybe adherence to the law. Right. What, what else do we do? What other option do we have? Right. And so the Pharisees said, okay, not only do we not break the laws... We will create as many barriers. I think we talked about this we last did, time. We did. We okay. did. Yeah. So they're creating barriers so that you can't even get close, close to, to breaking the real law. Right. Jesus is going to call out the hypocrisy of that. Uh-huh. And again, I don't think he's calling the hypocrisy out of laws per se. Right. I, I don't think Jesus is is going to criticize our canon law. But I, I think we have to be careful that 
when Jesus corrects us, that we have the humility to be corrected. Right. And the problem with the Pharisees is not, I think, that they were fundamentally wrong-headed. I don't think they were. I think their logic was sound. Uh-huh. But I think uh-huh. the way in which they were going about this was wrong-headed. And okay. when called out by the Lord, and when the the way of the Lord was demonstrated to be moving in a different direction than they were, their inability to follow after the Lord suggests what he will show later on is that they have this problem called hardness of heart. Uh-huh which is the fundamental problem in the Gospels. The uh-huh. disciples have it. Uh-huh. Pharaoh had it in the Old Testament. Uh-huh. The religious leaders have it, which is our inability to see that maybe I've interpreted this wrongly or maybe I need to see that the Lord is moving elsewhere. Right. Not sort of being rigorous about keeping divine law, but being uh, rigorous about keeping my own set of what that means. Or, or my, my own, own interpretation of what that yeah, means, right. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And this is where, you know, I, I sure is handy to be Catholic, <laughs> that I have a, a trustworthy institution that can say, look, this is how we read the script. This is... Right. This is what we think it means. So Jesus shows up. He shows them reality. Mm-hmm. He suspends the laws of nature and he, he heals this man. It says he looked around at him, them with anger because they refused to answer this question. Is it yeah. lawful? So all the law, the biblical law says is keep the Sabbath. Uh-huh. It is the Lord's. Uh-huh. The Pharisees are, are, I think, again, to, to give them the best possible sympathetic spin, they're doing their best to figure out what it means in their everyday life to right. honor the Lord. Right. But what what that equals out to is, you know, they, they quantify how many steps you can take sure. on the Sabbath day. You know, if you can turn on a light switch or not. Sure. Or they don't have light switches at the time. Yeah. But to the degree that this is helpful in, in coming closer to the Lord, that's a good thing. But this is this is something but other But if that, that becomes an end into itself. If it becomes like an end a or a hindrance to actually seeing where the Lord is moving. Right. I see. Um, which is, which is again, the, the fact of the matter. So yeah. they see the Lord moving in the world. They are witnesses to the Lord's saving work in the world. Uh-huh. And their hearts are hardened to it. Yeah. So, again, they show themselves to be a lot like Pharaoh, who sees the plagues in Egypt taking place. Yeah. And al- although he sees the workings of God, his heart is hardened by God. It's not just that he's too hardened to see what God is doing. Right. Seeing what God is doing is actually making his heart harder. Sure. For them, seeing what God is doing is actually making their hearts harder. Sure. And this is going to come back to bite them. So it says the Pharisees, then verse 6, they went out and immediately, there's that immediately again, right? They held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. So the, heal- the hand is healed and the Pharisees are like, we cannot believe that that guy dared to heal a hand let's go talk with another our political worst party effectively enemy. yeah so like but, but it's not just another political party it's our worst, our political, worst political enemy, enemy. right like okay. the most staunch conservative you can think of it's like let's go talk liberal. to the green party or the democratic socialists right. of america and make a plan no exactly yeah, right. which okay. you're like, how right. does this figure rally these disparate groups against yeah. themselves mm-hmm. and it's at this moment that the hardness of heart which is going to be you know we're going to see more of it it's that's the impetus that moves jesus to do what he does next So it says, then Jesus withdrew. And that's a really important note because Jesus begins, and this is important, I think, in preaching the gospel. Jesus goes to those who has who have authority. Right. Those who have authority reject Jesus. Right. So Jesus withdraws, goes to those who have no authority, and gives them authority. Mm-hmm. He goes out to the out. So he withdrew with his disciples. So he has some he was called. Uh, and it says, a great multitude from Galilee followed him, um, also from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomea and beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude came. Uh, and I want to jump down to verse 13. Okay. It says, then Jesus went up into the hills and he called to him 
those who he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve to be with him, to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. And then it goes on and gives the, the ordering of the twelve apostles. Mm-hmm. This is, um, I think, one of the most succinct definitions of what a disciple actually is, mm. which doesn't seem like it would be. Right. But I love to, to kind of nitpick at this because it... it um, Demonstrate something I think unexpected about discipleship. And what Jesus is saying is he goes, again, what's the first step in discipleship? All, discipleship is an Old Testament idea. We think of it as a very Christian idea, but it's not. A disciple mm-hmm. is simply one who follows after a teacher. Right. What's weird about Jesus, though, so there's lots of, of discipleship scenarios in Jesus' time. There's a lot of, if you, if you wanted to be a learned follower of Torah uh-huh. or a learned follower of Yahweh, uh-huh. you would find a good rabbi and uh-huh. you would sit at his feet and you would follow him uh-huh. and you would learn from him. And it said, uh, there's an ancient line that said, you know a good disciple because they're covered in the dust of their rabbi's mm. feet. They followed so closely. Yeah. What's weird about Jesus is that Jesus goes to them. Mm. Most rabbis or Plato or Aristotle, they let people come to them. I right. am learned. Here's all my wonderful words. And people come to follow at their feet. Right. Jesus does the opposite. And I think it would actually be shameful in that context for a rabbi to actually go out and find their own disciples. So what's wrong with you that you have to go find your own, right. which Jesus does, right. which is interesting. And it, again, right. it tells us something about Christian discipleship yeah. that's distinct from discipleship. The yeah, it's the opposite own. of either even founding like an academy. It's not like Jesus founded an academy. He did. Jesus Academy for kids who can't pray good and want to learn to do other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> is that Zoolander? Yeah, it's Sorry, Zoolander. Sorry, I, I, ru- no. I ruined the joke. No, no, no. It was subtle enough, but it was brilliantly subtle enough that I had to get there. <laughs> but, it, but it's beautiful because what Christian discipleship always begins with then is the calling, uh-huh. which is distinct from any other kind of discipleship the world had ever known. Right. We are called, and when called, the good disciple follows. Yeah. Verse 14 says, He appointed these 12 to be with him, to be sent out to preach, and to be, have authority to cast out demons. Mm-hmm. The most important part of that sentence is not the being sent out to preach or having the authority to cast out demons, those are both secondary. Right. The most important task of the disciple is to be with Jesus. Right. Which sounds trite and it sounds like, oh, that's a nice pious thing to say. Until you read the rest of the gospel and you realize that's actually what the disciples struggle most with. Mm. It's just keeping up. And by the time you get to the crucifixion, there's really only two left. Right. That have not taken off and run off someplace else. Yeah, you if you kind of evaluate Golgotha in light of to be with him, if that's the test of discipleship. Right. Okay. And, and it's it's a test of discipleship, but apparently it doesn't discount them. Right. Because even once they fail at that, the, the part of the beauty of what Mark's going to show us later on is everything that he asks of the disciples, they ultimately, for the most part, will fail at and Jesus does himself. Mm. There's going to be a theme throughout the second half of the book of Mark where Jesus will constantly tell people to watch uh-huh. and keep watch and stay awake uh-huh. and be aware. Yeah. In the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples are asleep except Jesus. Right. So he takes on what they could not do, which right. is, again, another aspect of discipleship, which is unique to Jesus. So it kind of goes on from there. Um, there's another story I want to come back to about the binding of the strong man with mm-hmm. Beelzebul. So we'll come there in a minute. One more word about discipleship, though, before we move on. It's in verse 31. So still chapter three, and this is um, a passage that uh, some of our Protestant friends like to hold against us, or at least in my experience. Um, It says this in verse 31, and his mother and his brethren came and they were standing outside and they sent him and called him and a crowd was sitting about him and they said, hey, your mom and your brother and your brethren are outside looking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brethren? And looking around at those who sat, uh, who sat about him. 
He said, here are my mother and my brethren. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Mm-hmm. And the, the crit- criticism I've heard toward Catholics is that, see, this is evidence that Catholics put more weight to Mary oh. than even Jesus does. Here's oh. Jesus. His mom, the Blessed Mother, shows up and Jesus doesn't seem to care. He doesn't have time for her because he's too busy doing the work of the gospel. So, See, you Catholics are all idiots. First of all, brethren is just a very broad and inclusive term. Just to get the apologetic it out is, of yeah, Brethren no. is a broad and inclusive term to mean kinsmen. Yeah, and right. Jesus calls his own disciples brethren. Right. So it could be cousins, it could be. But this point about Mary is very interesting. This yeah. idea, of, does this indicate that Catholics revere Mary too much? Or... Yeah. Well, what's the answer? Well, the answer is St. Uh, Augustine, actually, mm-hmm. is my favorite explanation of this. And so he says, you know, what is it? What makes Mary exalted more than any other Christian? It's her model of discipleship. So she would have been exalted simply by giving birth to the Messiah alone. Mm-hmm. She is this pure vessel that gives birth to the Messiah of the world, which is amazing. Yeah. But that's not the end of it. And so what Augustine said is Mary is far more exalted because of her obedience. So despite her natural motherhood, which already is cause for exaltion, yeah. exaltion, she was the first to say yes. So in a certain sense, she is the first to stand in line of those who do the will of right. God. Whoever does the will of God is my mo- my brother, sister, and mother. And who does the will of God more than fiat voluntas tua? And even chronologically, she mm-hmm. does it right. first, yeah, sure. so to speak. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so Augustine says, no, this is actually more evident. Now, it's, you know, yeah. I can still see, to, to play devil's advocate, how somebody could read this and be like, well, it sure seems like... But it is a good insight into what discipleship actually means and what the what Mary's role actually is. She leads she is the first disciple and uh-huh. she leads those of us who want to, to what be with Jesus. We just got the instruction that what it means to be a good disciple is to be with Jesus. She's the only one aside from John yeah. who never abandons the Lord yeah. at the cross. So she does in a certain sense stand first in line of the true disciples, which I think is kind of cool. Right in between that, I, I want to say one more word about something that came before. So uh, there's an interesting story that shows up in verse 19 of chapter 3. So it says, this is after he calls the disciples. We go through the list of the 12. And then it says, then he went home, verse 19. And home is not Nazareth. This is Capernaum. So home, in this sense, it's, it's kind of home base for him. Okay. Um, Capernaum is an important city. That's sort of where Jesus gets his home base in the Gospels. It's up near the Galilee. And I think it's a kind of an interesting place that Jesus chooses to have as his headquarters because Capernaum was founded after the Babylonian exile. So Mm -hmm. there's a prophet in the Old Testament, you might remember, most people forget, uh, who's actually named Nahum, Mm -hmm. um, which the word actually means comfort. Yeah, he's between Micah and and Habakkuk. No, he's between Habakkuk and Zephaniah. I think that's right. I think that's right. Boom. In the the 12. Well, you're from Protestant background. You know your Bible. Um, but Copper Nahum means the village of hope. Uh-huh. And they founded this as the, the exiles were returning from Babylon, oh. you know, hundreds of years before Jesus, before Jerusalem was rebuilt. There was yeah. no temple or city. They founded this little village as sort of a sign and in the hope of the Lord's presence returning to his people. Because uh-huh. they, remember, they all felt abandoned. They've been in exile. They've been in slavery. Yeah. And now they're slowly coming to resettle Jerusalem and the Holy Land. And maybe that means that God will return to us. So Copper Nahum became the sign of our hope that God would return. So I think it's yeah. kind of cool that Jesus that yeah. sets that up as home base. Because you said that, Scott, I want to ask a question that I'm wondering and our oh. listeners are wondering too. And it'll just be a two-minute question. Okay. I know we have a lot we'll of see about that. When you say the Lord's home base is in Capernaum, are you imagining that he has an apartment there? I mean, what is that? <laughs> Probably not. Okay. Um, it seems like where they are is at Simon and Andrew's house. Okay. Which is why they're Simon's mother-in-law. Peter's, well, Simon, later called Peter. 
His mother-in-law is present. And actually, archaeologists have unearthed what they think may have been actually the house where they gathered, which is right down the way from the synagogue in Capernaum, where we just started that first so scene. So Jesus kind of moved to Capernaum and was basically staying with his friends. Yeah, it seems that way. Okay. It does All seem... Right. Th- it's not 100% clear to me, but okay. it certainly seems that way. Okay. But what's beautiful is that, you know, even later on, as Jesus is doing these things in people's houses and hosting meals, you do get the impression that regardless of whose house... Who owns the house? Jesus is always the host. Sure. And it's Jesus who's sort of receiving these people. And, and well, he's the host after he's the consecration, Scott, before that is. Oh, my God. See what I did there? That was horrible. Disgustingly <laughs> well done. No, it's, it was good. Yeah, I want to hate it, but I can't. <laughs> okay. Now that we know that. You, yeah, so now so that we know that. So that's where Jesus he went, went home. Jesus right. yeah. went home. Right. Presumably to Simon and Andrew's house. Mark three twenty nine. Jesus yeah. went home. Or Mark three nineteen. 19 Jesus right. went home. And it says, and the crowd came together again. So now he's gaining in renown. We're yeah. up again in the north. We're, we're, we're around Galilee. We're not close to sort of the epicenter of religious life, uh-huh. right? Jerusalem. So Jesus, we, we talked about this last time. Um, Mark has this theme of what's called the Mark in secret. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is constantly telling people to keep quiet. Right. Don't tell, Don't tell anybody. Anyone. Right. And he tends to do that, not exclusively, but in large part geographically. Uh-huh. So when he's around big centers of Jewish thought or major synagogues or places where he will be attacked, he yeah. tends to keep things a little more under wraps. Uh-huh. Then he will sometimes go to places that are almost exclusively Gentile places, uh-huh. non-Jewish places. Uh-huh. That's where he's like, tell everybody. Well, right before whatever's about to happen, the Pharisees and Herodians plan to destroy him. To so destroy you can see him. how he'd be like, don't, listen, don't, let's not make a thing of this. And no, this isn't just they're, they're, they want to discredit him right. or they want to undermine him or they want to debate with him. Right. They want to destroy him. Right. This is slowly becoming not just annoyance with this guy, but slowly becoming hate with a blueprint, uh-huh. which is going to, again, grow as time goes on. So he goes home, back to Capernaum, presumably. It says, then the crowd came together so that they couldn't even eat. So people hear that he's coming back to this. So it's becoming known that he's staying up at Capernaum. People are hearing about this. They're coming together. It says, when his friends heard it, that's probably disciples, right? They went out to seize him, for they said he's besides himself. Actually, I I misspoke there. It's probably um, his relations, I think, is actually the word that's used in Greek. Okay. So we're not talking about disciples anymore. So now that he's back, people are... The people that know him, the people uh-huh. kind of from his hometown, yeah. are hearing, hey, whoa, we know this guy. You know, he's becoming this famous miracle worker now. Yeah. Something's up because this is the guy we played football with. Like, this right. isn't. Oh, so when they say he's back. beside himself, they're like, the, he's, he's, something's wrong with him. I think he's so. An, okay. I think so. Okay. Because they say, um, yeah, they, they try to seize him, which is what you would do. And then the people from, from Jerusalem say that he's, that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. Exactly. Okay. So the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they said he's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So this is problematic, even on a, on a logic level. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is going to call out the logic. Beelzebub, by the way, do you know what that word literally means? It's a, it's a title for the evil one, of course, but it's actually an important one. What does it mean? I think, so I've heard it either rendered Lord of the Flies, uh-huh, right. which is creepy. It's, yeah. it's almost onomatopoeic, right? Uh-huh. Onomatopoeic. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Beelzebub, it's, it's buzzy. Yeah. But it's also sometimes rendered Lord of the House, uh-huh. and a title for the evil one has been used as Lord of the House. Uh-huh. Um, and that's important here because they're saying, okay, they're using this title for the evil one or maybe this major demon. It's mm-hmm. unclear to me whether it's the evil one or one of his generals, right? Yeah. Um, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So Jesus calls him out. Verse 23. He said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So he's playing with Lord of the house. I think he is. Okay. Which is very important. Mm -hmm. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So if you follow Jesus's logic there, what he's saying is, no, no, no. I can't be casting out demons with the power of Satan. Right. Because if I was doing that, that would mean that Satan's kingdom is divided. Yeah. A kingdom can't be divided on itself. So Satan can't cast out minions of Satan by the power of Satan. Sure. Because then that kingdom would be divided. Uh And so I am not casting out demons by the power of Satan. Because if I was, his kingdom would be broken. Right. So what's the conclusion that Jesus is sort of shockingly driving you to? That it is not divided, but unified. Which I find one of the more shocking things that Jesus says. Right. He doesn't contest that Satan's kingdom stands. Uh And this is, I think, where he lays out his agenda for the rest of the gospel. Okay. He is the Lord of the house stands. I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan because that would mean his house is divided. Yeah. Where his kingdom is broken up. Mm -hmm. It's not. And this is Jesus's way and through Mark. His way of showing this is why the world seems so ridiculous as it is. Uh Because Satan has been granted a certain kind of authority over the world. He is not the king of the world. Right. And my job now, because Satan has falsely sort of taken this onto himself, my job is to bind and plunder. Jesus' agenda for the gospel is to bind and plunder the strong man's house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember. I don't remember if we mentioned it last time or not. But in the scene of the baptism, just a couple chapters before... When John says he's sort of unwilling to baptize Jesus, remember, he's a little hesitant. Um, He says, uh, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. He says, one is coming who is, my translation says, mightier than I. Uh But in the Greek, it actually says, one is coming who is stronger than I. Okay. And so he gives Jesus the title of stronger. Mm. So who can bind and plunder a strong man? Only one who is stronger. Stronger. So Jesus has already been set up as the stronger man. Okay. But again, what Mark is is demonstrating to us, or what Jesus is doing through Mark, through via Peter, I suppose, is he's allowing us, he's giving us permission to say, man, the world's a disaster. It's really hard. It feels like things are out of control. Right. It feels like evil's in charge. Right. Which, as a Christian, sometimes it's difficult to admit that because we want to kind of give the platitudes of like, no, but I know that Jesus has conquered right. evil and he's conquered my sin and right. I'm not afraid of anything anymore. But Right. I, I am afraid of things, and I right. do feel like I'm a slave to sin. Even right. though I know that this isn't the reality, Mark is giving us permission. Jesus is giving us permission to say, yeah, I know I know how broken it feels, right. and I've come to undo that. Right. And it's okay to feel that way. Yeah. Like you're broken. The world is broken, everything else, because I came to bind and plunder. Yeah. It's interesting. About a chapter later, he uses the exact same language in the calming of the storm, storm in chapter 4, verse 35, as he does for casting out demons. Mm-hmm. So there's a problem, either a demon or a storm. Uh-huh. Jesus rebukes it. The thing is silenced and everyone around responds with amazement. Wow. But I think it's compelling that this, the, the writer describes a storm in the same way right. as an exorcism. Yeah. It's not that storms are demonic, but it's that the Lord is ruler of everything. It's an all or nothing thing. What is yeah. saying in Irenaeus that said that which is not assumed is not redeemed? Yes. In other words, if Christ didn't come to save all of it, he didn't come to save any of it. Mm. But that everything is out of whack and Jesus came to set the world back right. Mm. So I like the fact that Mark describes the storm in the same way as an exorcism. Yeah. Again, not that we're going to over, over-spiritualize it, but that he's the Lord of all, everything, sure. which I find really comforting. Yeah.
But that brings us to an interesting twist that happens in chapter four. Okay. And that's when Jesus pulls, he, he already kind of pulled it, but now he does it in earnest. So in chapter four, verse one, again, we're, we're hot on the heels of a whole lot of conflict. Conflict with the religious leaders. They're trying to destroy him. They're forming right. these weird alliances. They're coming after him. There's, you know, Beelzebul. They're, you know, the, well, the, and rather directly, right? I mean, so the end, of, the end of chapter three is saying that he's possessed so that people will shut him down. I mean, that's very serious. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and it, that's important because it's one thing to disregard Jesus. Yeah. It's one thing to try to discredit him. It's one thing to simply say, I'm not going to believe in him. Yeah. It's another thing to say that the Lord of the universe is actually working with Satan. Yeah. It's a different level of something, yeah. which is why Jesus, and one thing I wasn't going to mention, but maybe we should, is that line right after the sort of binding of the strongman line mm-hmm. is when Jesus says this line that troubles some people. Truly, I, I'm in uh, chapter 3, verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Well, yeah, what does that the mean? The unforgivable sin. I think what right. it means is... And again, context is important. This is why proof texting is always dangerous. You can't just pull out a Bible passage and throw it at someone to try to prove your point. Right. It's not coincidental that this line comes right after the binding of the strongman passage where you have people, again, not just simply writing Jesus off, not simply being mistaken in their discernment about Jesus, but saying that Jesus is working for and with Satan. Yeah. Jesus, what is the unforgivable sin? It's not the, you can accidentally stumble into sin that's never going to be forgiven. But if you believe, if you're blaspheming, I, I take blaspheming against the Holy Spirit to be believing as these with hardness of heart seem to be, that Jesus cannot, does not have the authority he claims to have. Uh-huh. And if Jesus does not have the authority he claims to have, then he cannot forgive our sins. Uh-huh. Why is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit unforgivable? Because if we don't believe there's a Holy Spirit that can forgive us, God can't plow his way into right. our so it's not a, it's not as if there's a sort of a sin in the middle of the sin garden which we dare right. not eat so much as exactly. as a matter of reason right. if we believe that God can't forgive our sins we can't repent of that exactly right exactly He's now we might done. say I have you know we might say I have believed that I have really doubted I have despaired yeah. even I have despaired and yeah. now I repent but once we're doing the act of repenting right we're in a different place exactly right mm-hmm. this isn't it's not eternal in the sense that it can never change right like dun dun but you did as it as long once. as you don't believe the Holy Spirit can forgive your sins. You wouldn't be in confession be confessing it because exactly. you would. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly right. So I think it's it's much less mysterious than it seems to be, yeah. quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But again, that takes us to chapter four. And again, chapter four needs to be understood hot on the heels of all this, not just conflict, but conflict, you know, hate with a blueprint that the, right. the plans are being made. So it says, again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and he sat on it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he taught them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. Okay, I want to get into this parable for a minute. This is one of the most famous of the parables. It's called the sower and the seeds. Right. But I want to say a word about parables, because I certainly had a very wrong-headed understanding of parables growing up, um, like from Sunday school and everything else. Uh-huh. And I, I think if you ask most people who have some semblance of understanding of the faith, and if you ask them, hey, why does Jesus speak in parables? Mm-hmm. What do you think they would say? Stories help us to understand. Yeah, because right. they're easier to understand. But that's not what Jesus says. And so oh. I, Mark is, is good and Mark is great and I love Mark. Um, in Matthew's gospel, it's even clearer because Jesus doesn't speak a single parable in the gospel of Mark until chapter 13. In which, the gospel of Matthew, you mean? I said, in the gospel of Matthew, sorry. 
And the reason I point that out is that I think, again, a lot of people who have some semblance of understanding of these things would say, you know, if you asked what is Jesus's MO for teaching, what's his, what's his typical mode of teaching? They'd say, oh, Jesus teaches in parables. We all learn that, you know, vines and vine branches. But he doesn't. He typically teaches in other means. And in Matthew, it's even clearer. When Jesus begins to teach in parables, the disciples all come to him and they say, why the heck are you teaching in parables? Right. Why are you doing that? Uh-huh. It's an unusual thing for them. Yeah. What are you, Aesop? <laughs> That's what they say. Mm-hmm. It's in uh, the Gospel of Thomas. Um, so he says, listen. And that listen is actually very important. I'll come back to that in a second. Okay. He says, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. De- devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. Immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched since it had no root. It withered away. Other seeds fell on among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell upon good soil and it brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. So this is where things get weird. Because again, most of us have heard that parable before the, the right. so different kinds to of so, grounds. So, 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 right. Rocky like, ground. Yeah. And it doesn't right. take that much work to right. figure that out. Yeah. Okay, we are all different kinds of people. And yeah, and it's like, oh, that person is definitely rocky. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh-huh. scorched. Right. But then verse 10, it says, when he was alone, those who were with him, um, those who were about him with the 12, asked him concerning the parables. So they're like, what does it mean? They don't seem to understand as readily as we all <laughs> do right. what the parables are. He says to them, and again, in Matthew, it's more clear. And in Matthew, you get their words, which are, why do you speak in parables? Why, do you speak in, why are you doing this ASAP, they say. Why are you doing this ASAP? And he said to them, verse 11, to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. That they may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn again and be forgiven. What does that mean? What does that mean? That doesn't sound good. Right. That's very different than, oh, because they're easy to understand. Right, exactly. They're uh-huh. agrarian. These are agrarian people. Lest they should turn again and be forgiven. Isn't that a good thing? You would think. Yes. And again, we're, we're kind of coming straight off of this blaspheming against the Holy Spirit line, uh-huh. this unforgivable sin. Right. And now Jesus has, he, he's gone cryptic. So what, what's happened? If you follow the narrative, Jesus has entered into conflict. Right. Everything's out to get Jesus. Uh-huh. The demons are out to get him. The world is out to get him. The, the, the brokenness. And for real, we actually see for that's real. real. It's not like Jesus is paranoid. But no, yes, sorry. Yeah. That's a, thank you for that correction. But that's important. Yeah. And it's important that we know, even as we move closer to the passion, it's important to recognize that Jesus is in a real conflict. Mm-hmm. There's real authority that the evil one has usurped over the world. It, mm-hmm. It's fascinating. In the gospel, I keep going to Matthew. But remember in the gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness mm-hmm. and Jesus, uh, the evil one says, well, if you bow down before me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms of the world. Right. Weirdly to me, Jesus doesn't refute Satan's that claim over the it. kingdom. He's not like, you don't have that. He, yeah, which he could have. Right. He simply responds and says, no. It's. Yeah. But I, I find that interesting. Again, Satan's not the king of the world. Right. But Jesus is acknowledging that, you know, there is a certain authority that need that has been usurped. There's a certain control that has been given over this world that I am taking back. Uh-huh. I'm taking back what's rightfully mine and I'm making it right again. Yeah. And that's what, because to not recognize that there's a real authority that Jesus takes back is yeah. to diminish the power of the cross. Yeah. There's real pain. There's real evil that is being defeated. Yeah. With the real suffering that Jesus is facing on the cross. 
So conflict, conflict, conflict. Everything's out to get him. Jesus goes cryptic. Once mm-hmm. they move toward destruction, this is where, again, the Mark and Secret sort of escalates. Uh-huh. And he turns cryptically and he says, I'm going to speak in coded language uh-huh. that he tells the disciples. on the, Those on the inside can understand, but those on the outside will not understand. Yeah. And I think this actually draws us back to the book of Isaiah. Uh-huh. And there's something that, that is said in Isaiah 6 that's incredibly similar to this. Now, remember... Jesus didn't merely come to die. Right. Jesus came to earth. He became incarnate to establish a church. Yeah. That would be the mechanism through which all the world would be saved. Yeah. Not, not merely to go to the cross. Yeah. So before he heads to the cross, people are out to get him. People are trying to destroy him. He's got a lot of work to do first. I have so, to teach and form and prepare you to be. Absolutely. Okay. So absolutely. part of what he's saying is this is formational for you so that you can move forward to make disciples and. And you're not ready for me to go yet. Okay. There's a lot more for me to do and teach and establish before I go to my inevitable death yeah. that you need to have because the church needs to be able to to grow and, okay. and be present. So there's a way go. in which this thing about I'm telling you so that you know and no one else does yes. sounds like Gnost- the heresy of Gnosticism, right? There's a secret knowledge that I'm going to give to you. But you're saying yes. it's a preparatory period. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, that is what he's doing. He's letting them in on a secret that he's not letting everybody else in on. Right. But that's not the same as not, it's some of the, the mechanisms of Gnosticism, but it, it is preparatory for them. Okay. And it's not eternal. And, and the reason I go back to Isaiah, there's a line in Isaiah. It's in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, which is the, um, the call of Isaiah. I don't know uh-huh. if you remember the story. It's the famous story where Isaiah is caught up into God's throne room and he finds himself sitting in the presence of God. I don't know if it's a dream or a vision or what's, what's actually happening. But if you remember the story, Isaiah's sitting in the throne room of God. This is a, a lousy time in the history of Israel. Yeah. Everybody's off the rails. They're committing sin. They're turning far from God. The exile is coming slowly down the line. And Isaiah's caught up into the throne room of God and he realizes where he is. And if you remember in chapter six of Isaiah, he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for Uh my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. I shouldn't be here. I don't, I don't belong here. We're a sinful people. First of all, I love that Isaiah, even though we know that Isaiah is one of the holiest people of his time, he has a weird solidarity with his people. And he's like, look, I'm a part of a sinful people. It's not like I'm better than all of you fools out there, but I'm a part of a people who is steeped in sin. So I don't belong here. And it says in the, in the text that one of the seraphim, seraphim means the burning one. So the Mm -hmm. ones who are closest to God, they take um, a little charcoal briquette out of the, out of the burning coal. And and cleanse his lips. I always get a kick out of the fact that the seraphim, which literally means the burning, the ones oh, who are on fire, use the little, little tongs <laughs> Instead of their to get hands them. Or yeah, for, yeah. Right? I mean, they're right. on fire anyway. Uh-huh. Anyway, they touch the coal to Isaiah's lips, yeah. which is what he says the source of his sinfulness. And he's cleansed. And yeah. I think there's something very beautiful. In the Old Testament, Isaiah undergoes a kind of suffering, because uh-huh. I imagine it would hurt to have a charcoal on your lips. It does, believe he, me. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Yeah. But he undergoes some suffering, which purges him of his sinfulness, right. or of his un- unworthiness, I suppose. Right. So then he's purged, he goes through this, this purgation, and he says, all right, and he hears the Lord says, okay, who will I go to send to my people? And he says, send me, here I am. And he says, what do you want me to tell my sinful, broken fellow people? And what it says in Isaiah 6 is, go and tell them, see, but um, do not perceive. Mm-hmm. Hear, but do not hear. Yeah. Uh, perceive, but never understand. It's the words of Mark showing back up. Mm. So Isaiah is told by God, I want you to make the people blind and deaf and not understand. Huh. And if God told you, if, you, if God came to you, J.D., and was like, J.D., I want you to go out and be my messenger to my people. And you were like, all right, what do you want me to say? Right. And he said, I want you to make them all blind and deaf and not understand. Yeah. What would be your response to God? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> right, right, right. Some semblance. I would, I would say, why? Yeah, uh-huh. that's not what Isaiah says. Do you know what Isaiah says? I don't remember Scott. He said, "I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to pick on you. <laughs> you got me. I'm not." He says, "How long?" Uh-huh. And that's what I find compelling. He says, "How long?" So he understands that this is a temporary reality. For some reason, the Lord desires the people to be blind and deaf and not understand for a time. For him to do something. And so he says, how long, Lord, are they going to be blind and deaf and not understand? And the Lord says, until the cities lie waste. Right. Until the land is destroyed and utterly desolate. And the tree is cut down. And if it comes back up, I'm going to cut it down again. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get the, the holy shoot. The, yeah. the, the shoot of the stump of Jesse. The image. But in other words, the Lord says, people are going to be blind and deaf. And Isaiah, Old Testament, he says, the people will be blind and deaf and not understand until the land lies waste, until the land is destroyed. Mm. Now, how does this translate back to this? In the ancient Israelite mindset, the king was meant to embody the people. They were supposed to, we mentioned this with the Jesus watching. Right. The king is supposed to take on not only the fate of the people, but the land itself. The king embodied Israel. Right. And so if you read this in light of Isaiah, Uh which I mentioned last time, right? The whole gospel is meant to be read in light of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. According to Isaiah, the people are going to be blind and deaf and not understand until the land is destroyed. Yeah. Now, what's fascinating about this parable is that there's there's a couple levels to it. You can read the parable of the sower, I think, in terms of salvation history. Mm -hmm. Because what is salvation history? It's God constantly um, giving himself to his people. Trying to teach the people about who he is. In other words, sowing seed. Mm-hmm. And the story of salvation history through the prophets, through you know all of these great figures, it falls on all sorts of weird soil. Yeah. And sometimes they'll listen to the prophets for a little while, but then they'll reject them. Rejection, mm-hmm. rejection, rejection. And so you can read the Old Testament and think to yourself, man, is this story ever going to work out? I mean, interesting. The Old Testament ends in some darkness. Yeah. That never really, we never really get the happy ending. Right. And I think you could also rightfully read the Gospels. And experience the same problem or the same frustration. Because you can be reading this. Imagine you've never heard the gospel before. Right. You're like, man, this Jesus guy, he just, everybody hates him. Mm-hmm. They keep rejecting him. They keep trying to destroy him. These these kind of nobodies on the periphery of the society, they seem to like him. Yeah. But nobody else seems to. And even they never stick around for very long. Right. Is this ever going to work out? Yeah. Jesus is, in the Old Testament, the, the God is always the gardener. He's always the sower. He's always the vine dresser. Yeah. So in the parable, Jesus, it makes sense, is the sower. What's he sowing? He's sowing the gospel. He's sowing the message of the kingdom. If you're reading the narrative, you're like, oh, yeah, that's happening. Rejection, rejection, rejection. That's what's happening to Jesus. Is this story ever going to work out? Is there going to come a time when the gospel, this message that Jesus is proclaiming, bears fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold? And so Jesus is promising them that that will happen. In a certain way, or assuring them that that assuring them that that's going to happen. So the question is: In the Gospels, when does that happen? In Acts. I mean, you know, that's exactly right, it. Right. It's a, it's kind of a trick question. Right. It doesn't happen in the Gospels. The right. Gospels close with in the best case scenario: you have some disciples who are like, "Yay, Jesus has risen from the dead," right. and they go back and they lock themselves in their house. Yeah. It never seems like the parable comes to be. It never seems like it bears the thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold fruit. But if you read it in light of Isaiah, what, what do we have? Yeah, it happens in Acts of the Apostles when on Pentecost, the church baptizes 3,000 people in a pop. Yeah. But what do you have? You have until Jesus lies waste, until mm. the king is destroyed oh. before the people finally see and hear and perceive and oh. understand. Why? Because that's how Jesus goes about establishing the church and the sacraments. 
So Jesus is even here when he's talking to them about seeing but not perceiving yes. and um, hearing but not understanding. Yes. He, he, he's hearkening in a way that would have been an understandable reference to Isaiah and also identifying himself in that way in, in a certain sense. Yes and no. Okay. And I might be being frustrating now. Um, <laughs> I think one of the features of Mark, I think, I'm not 100% on this and maybe scholars would disagree with me. And I think we're going to see even more next time. Okay. I think one of the features of Mark is that Mark tells his story in such a way that I think he often wants us to feel the confusion of the disciples. Oh. And I think it's actually one of the features is that you should read this. And if you don't know the whole Isaiah history, you might think to yourself, what is happening? What? Right. But I think Mark's okay with you feeling that. Oh. And even later on, when the disciples are shown to be blind and deaf and not, because what's going to happen is that shortly after this, it's not only the Pharisees and the religious leaders that are shown to be blind and deaf and not understand. The disciples will be blind and deaf and not understand. So there's a way in which the text itself is not necessarily intelligible to the people who are. In part. Except as it unfolds. I think so. Wow. Which is actually a brilliant way to tell the story. uh Because I don't know about you, but when I, you know, in in the parable sense, if I hear a story or a teaching or something that I don't understand, it's going to drive me nuts. And I'll lie awake and I'll stare at the ceiling and I'll try to wrestle with it in my head to try to get to the bottom of it. Which is one of the features of the parable. It's not merely to keep people out. It's that we're meant to actually wrestle with the gospel. We're meant to wrestle with the parables so that when Jesus finally allows our eyes to be open, we've already done some of the work Mm. to actually get there. I think that's one of the features of Mark. He wants us to feel it's the discipleship gospel in that he wants us to walk in the shoes of the disciples. Neat. The other thing that's kind of interesting about that is that, again, as the story goes on, yeah, the disciples will show themselves to be blind and deaf. But what the narrative does from really chapter five on is show Jesus pretty actively healing blind people and deaf people. There's oh. a transition in the text from all so the there's exorcisms. This, there's this thing about seeing and not yes. seeing and hearing and not hearing. And then Jesus begins to heal people who have those physical afflictions. Right. Absolutely right. Wow. Which dude. is good news because if you feel like you're pretty blind and deaf to what's going on, right. that's his specialty. In chapter 5, Jesus goes to this place called the country of the Gerasenes, which is a faraway place. It's a very non-Jewish place where Jesus encounters another demoniac, someone who has this demon. And it's actually a pretty, um, it's a really powerful story. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, that's the Galilee, and the country of the Gerasenes. And when they had come out of the boat, there met him out of the tombs, a man who had an unclean spirit, who lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. I think that's a direct tie back into what Jesus' sort of agenda is, the binding of the strong man. Right. No one could bind this guy yeah. because of this this um, real spiritual affliction that he has. Um, even with a chain, for he had often been bound with fetters and chains, and the chains he wrecked apart, and the fetters he broke into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one was strong enough for the binding of this guy, which is interesting. So night and day among the tombs, he was always crying out. He was hurting himself. Um, All these terrible things. And then it says he saw Jesus come from afar and he ran and he worshiped him. There's two things happening that that are strange here. Number one, it would be improper for a Jewish man, much less a group of Jewish men, to be among the tombs. 
because to be in contact with things of death would render you ritually unclean. So the fact that Jesus is among the tombs with this guy who has a demon would automatically render the reader to be like, well, wait, what are you talking about? Well, you shouldn't be there. This yeah. isn't right. Jesus is going to the places where he ought not be, so to speak, or at least in a worldly sense. Um, and then this man sees him and it says he ran and he worshiped. Literally, it says he lay prostrate before him. And then he cried out in a loud voice and he said, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. That's actually exorcism language in the uh -huh. reverse. He's almost trying to reverse exercise Jesus. Right. And there's this kind of conflict where he wants to come. He wants to run to Jesus. He's trying to lie prostrate before him, worship him. But he's also trying to counter exercise him because there's a split in him. There's a brokenness yeah. in him. And it says, for he had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus said, what's your name? Jesus loves to name demons. He likes to, to have the authority because it's a sign of authority over them, yeah. right? What's your name? He says, my name is Legion for we are many. Legion literally means 6,000. So there's a lot of demons in yeah. this guy. It says, and he begged him eagerly not to send him out of the country. There was a great herd of swine. This is another sign that we're not in uh, Jewish, a, a very Jewish cultural there's place. Pigs around. There's pigs and there's dead bodies. There's pigs and there's tombs. Why does he like being in the country so much? I don't think he does like being he in the says, country. He begs him not to send him out of the country. I think he wants to be somewhere. Okay. I think there's a deep fear of be, having nowhere to go. At least I'm safe here. At least, you know, people don't have to deal with me. He's obviously The man is begging out. him, not the demons, but I the think man it's the is man. saying, don't just, the man who's possessed is saying, don't just send me out into the wilderness all by myself. I please. think so. I okay. think so. But but the fact that you said that, there's there's another side to it because... Yeah, the great herd of swine are feeding there, and they begged him, um, send us into the swine. So now it's the demons. They want to be someplace, too. This is, a, this is a great argument against Gnosticism, actually. You brought it up earlier. Everything wants an embodiment, right? Mm. The demons actually want to be embodied in something. Mm. They don't want to be floating in the ether, so to speak, which yeah. is interesting. And they're like, well, let's put us in the swine. And it's interesting that Jesus then chooses to do it. He has a kind of weird mercy on the demons and lets them be embodied in this way. Yeah. And I think part of why he does that is to demonstrate that when we try to compromise, any compromise or any, any agreements we can make with evil, it's just going to lead to destruction. Because they don't get to be in the swine for very long. They destroy the swine. Right. He and sends they, the, the demons into the swine and the swine... Um, run across a steep bank into the sea and drown in the sea. So it's like, please let us be in those pigs. So that we can okay. destroy them. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Because that's what sin does. That's right. what evil does. It destroys us. Even when it seems attractive, we're like, well, I'm just going to hang on to this or I want this. It will ultimately destroy. Yeah, so the herdsmen fled. It says they told it in the city and the country and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind. That scene actually is a foreshadowing of the angel sitting on Jesus' tomb. Oh, Not that the angel wasn't in his right mind, right. but the idea of sitting there clothed. Actually, the language is evocative yeah. of what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it, uh, what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine, they begged Jesus to depart from their neighborhood. They don't want Jesus there. Why not? Because the swine were their economy. Right. Jesus is actually, in saving this man's life, he's actually wrecked the economy. Oh, and so they ca they want him out. They're like, oh. you are bringing, I, we don't like the consequence right. of what this is going to bring. And so again, there's a different kind of, of rejection or conflict that Jesus is facing. That whole setup of dead people, of um, pigs, of things that are unclean, 
leads us to the last, last thing I want to say, which is this woman with the hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. It was a very famous story in verse 21. Mark 5, 21. Mark 5, 24. 24. Sorry about that. Yeah, 5, 24. There's a couple stories about women. Who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and yes. no one could make her better. And she just kept, doctors were trying to help her and she kept getting worse. And she thought, if I go and if I touch the garments of Jesus, I'll be made well. So what's happening here in the Old Testament law, um, and this isn't just the Pharisaic law. This isn't just the man-made law. This is actually biblical law. Yeah. It has to do with clean and unclean, right? Yeah. Everything that may, and this is one of the things that really wrecks people in, in the Bible and, and gets yeah. very confusing. What does it mean to be clean or unclean? What it means to be rendered unclean is to come in contact with things of death, mm-hmm. right? So touching a dead body would render you unclean. Um, bleeding, having a cut and bleeding would render you unclean. Certain um, bodily things that simply naturally happen to people could render one unclean. Not because God is sexist or, or God doesn't like certain people over right. other people, but the idea was what it means to be ritually unclean is not morally unclean. Ritual uncleanliness has nothing to do with moral status. It has to do with access to the temple. Right? Mm-hmm. So if someone is ritually unclean, in other words, they have either come in contact with death or have some diminution of life in their body, they're not allowed in the temple. In the so tabernacle. when you say it doesn't have to do with moral status, it, it actually reminds me of if you and I were driving in and then you were like, hey, uh, why don't there's a, there's a noon around the corner. Why don't we um, there's, a what? Hit, there's a noon mass around oh. the corner. Why don't we hit mass? And I was like, oh, yeah, except I just had a sandwich. I would yeah. be in a certain way. I hadn't kept the fast, and therefore I would be unprepared to receive the Eucharist. Not not that I couldn't enter the church or something like that, but it seems more similar to that. I have yes. not kept this rule, even if I would just right. the way it was. It's not like I'm a bad person that I had a sandwich. Or yes, except you wouldn't be allowed in the church because yeah. of this. Right. So yes, so there's more right. of the a analogy, consequence. There's more of a there's a deeper consequence. Mm-hmm. But there was also, and again, this isn't really biblical, but there was a cultural understanding that that actually does make you bad. Yeah. Oh, you had a sandwich. Right. Oh, or you couldn't receive the Eucharist for one reason or another. Right. Oh, it's you know there there was a right. Um, there was a sense of that that you're. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is it's not a moral badness, but it's not in this culture. It's perceived to be a someone a person who's ritually unclean is judged to be right morally insufficient. Yeah, that that happens, which is not the fault of the law. I don't right. think. And okay. the reason for all of this is that why, why why could you not come in the tabernacle or in the temple vicinity if you had a diminution of life? Well, the idea was the temple was always meant to be a reminder that this is not the way the world was supposed to be. Yeah. There was a time in the garden when death was not what it is now. Yeah. And there would come a time sometime in the future when God would defeat death. Yeah. And so the temple was held up as this icon of the way the world was supposed to be and the yeah. way the world will be again. Death had no place in there. Yeah. And so as this built-in reminder, a painful one, it would cut off access. So what that means is that not only does this woman have this real infirmity, this probably painful and uncomfortable and everything else, she has been cut off from her worshiping community for 12 years. Yeah. She has not been able to go into the temple or into her community or to worship with her people for 12 years. She embodies, in a certain sense, an ethos that exists in Israel, this yeah. idea of being cut off, the rejection, cast off from right. God. Now, here's where the, the catch comes. The idea was if you were unclean and you touched someone who was clean, it, it, like if you had eaten a sandwich and, I touched, mass, and you, you touched me, you couldn't I wouldn't be able to receive either, which yeah. stinks, right? right? That's the idea. It's long, it's not, so when she touched Jesus, there's an audacity to it because she's not supposed to touch anyone. There's a huge audacity. Yeah. 
the reason I, I want to end on this story and the reason I think this story is so important is that this is Jesus' embodiment of the reversal of the Old Testament yeah. law. Not mm-hmm. that her uncleanness renders him unclean, but that his profound cleanliness and that he is the new temple, which yeah. is the sign of death being defeated yeah. and the world being set back right. He actually emanates life back to her rather than death being emanated to him. Right. He's reversing not only death, but he's reversing the law. He's reversing the whole trajectory of the Torah. Yeah. And he's actually, and somehow she has this sense yeah. that if I touch him, maybe I can be cleansed. Yeah. Okay, so I want to jump to chapter six. Okay. Just a couple things here as we kind of bring this to a close. There's um, the moment in chapter six where Jesus now has called his disciples to himself Mm -hmm. and now he begins to send them out. Uh-huh. And there's something interesting that Mark does that will introduce us to another kind of Markan feature in his, in, his, in his writing. So in chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Jesus called to him the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And this is, we know this passage, right? He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, to wear um, sandals, but not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not receive you and they refuse to hear you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they preached that men should repent and they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Cool. This is, in a certain sense, them playing out what he talked about in chapter 3, right? Mm -hmm. That they should be with him, number one, and then they will be sent out to preach and to cast out demons. This is them doing it. Between then, between what we just were, where we just were, and then is our our healing. So a bunch of healings that Jesus is saying, you'll do healing of the sick. He's demonstrated that with a... With a, a woman who is hemorrhaging and with a girl who is dead and these things so that they have experienced this. Which is important because the only way they can really be sent out with authority is that if Mark establishes Jesus' authority first. Right. So he needs to be established as having authority to do these things mm-hmm. so that he can then send people in his authority. Okay. Which is what the disciples are doing. So yeah, that, that's very important. Um, but what's, what's interesting is two things. I did ministry for many years. And I was taught how to evangelize people. How how should how should we should we should engage the world and lead people into discipleship? And you know the the instruction I always sort of got in the, the worlds where I was taught to do ministry. Win build send Scott. Win build send baby. Yeah, but but you you establish friendships, right? You, right. you establish relationships. You you go slow. This is basically shoot them with the gospel cannon. Uh-huh. If they take it, great. If they reject it heck with them and just move on Mm -hmm. which i've always taught was kind of the opposite of what you're supposed to right right no like you know build build a relationship relationship. yeah and i think so much of the buzzword of like today's is like relational ministry right i mean that's so much of what's talked about in youth ministry or religious education or campus ministry is absolutely is relational ministry totally and this is different jesus says because jesus says go i'm just kidding uh well i mean jesus (laughs) says go uh preach that people should repent and uh then if nobody wants to hear it and, and there's a reason for this. So I think that what we just said is is correct. I believe in relational ministry. I believe in wind built I'm actually all about those things. Uh, but, but Jesus is doing something different. And I, I think this is not a message for ordinary time. This is something specific. This is not a perennial teaching. Jesus oh. knows what's facing him. 
He knows the threat and he knows the conflict and he knows what he's up against and he knows he's got a time frame. He knows primarily that there is a bunch of other options for messiahs that people are turning to mm-hmm. that are militaristic and power hungry and, well, you know, that want the wrong kind of gospel, that want the wrong kind of kingdom. And Jesus knows, all right, we've got a time crunch because in about 40 years, the Roman military is going to come and this thing is going to come to a head. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be leveled. There is a serious real-time issue that has to be dealt with. So we go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. We go to the Israelites first. We give them the message. We try to get as many as we can on board. And if they reject it, we have to keep moving because Mm. time is short. After his resurrection, really after Pentecost, time will sort of expand. Jesus will give the authority to the apostles to have a little bit more time to do the hard work of evangelization. But at this point in the story, Jesus knows his life is being sought. There are plans being drawn up to destroy him. And he's got to get the message out to as many as possible before that happens. Do you think, though, I I appreciate that. Um, Do you think, though, there is a, a way that we can take this as a sort of balance between the notion of the church being established over time and and then yeah. the, the sort of eschatological reality that we don't know the time or the hour and that the Lord is coming and yes. these kinds of things. It seems like this is in a certain way, a good exhortation yes. for people for a church, which might be inclined towards a lot of winning and not so much of a, a, of proclaiming the gospel. No, that's absolutely true. And so there, there's, there's different ways to look. There's different perspectives on this. Or not, there's not, there's, there's different aspects uh-huh. to this same story. There is a time frame that Jesus is under. So that is true. Yeah. But there's also the simple fact that Jesus has already done this himself. He went to the religious leaders. Right. They said he was in line with Satan. Right. And he withdrew. Yeah. So there is a point even in, in all of our evangelization efforts, you know, if somebody's just never going to listen to you. Yeah. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to cut them out of your lives. But, you know, maybe well, move on to the people that God. And this also seems to counter sort of a maxim that we hear often today that we sort of like a preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words kind of idea, which is like, well, you absolutely you, positively right, have to right, use words. Right. Maybe. I mean, if you're friendly and if you are, you know, if you're friendly to people and right. nice and take, take care of poor people, right. everyone will see that you're right. different because, and this right. here, Jesus is preach talking about gospel. a different thing, not just preach the gospel, but um, cast out demons, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. some serious stuff that's different from yeah. that. And, and. This isn't to dismiss what you said. Please do. But no, no, I, I, I don't. It, it doesn't dismiss it. But there is something I almost long for it. There is a culture that Jesus is dealing and the disciples are dealing with here that where people recognize the real spiritual and physical infirmities that they need to be healed from. Mm. And you get the impression that people are desperate for someone to come and relieve them of this brokenness, right? right. I don't think we live in a world anymore that recognizes our own brokenness, or at least in our culture. Right. I think it's one of our biggest problems is that we don't need a savior because we don't see anything that we need saving from right. in our of ourselves. Right. So there is a more immediacy in the sense that people realize, wow, there's someone who's offering me healing from this thing. I mean, this is maybe why... John Paul II talks so much about the the new evangelization. We have to find new methods and new ardor yeah. and new ways to articulate the same message because people don't realize they need to be saved anymore mm-hmm. from anything. So right. th- there's there's lots of aspects to this. And I think there's the real value. of you know, you, People really do need the gospel. They just don't know they need it. But here's what else I think is interesting. This is what's called a Markan sandwich. Okay. The technical, the big theological term is called intercalation. But Uh Mark will often sandwich together one main point in terms of two parts of the story. Okay. So here you have the disciples. They go out. They, you know, shake the dust off if they're not received. 
And then if you fast forward to verse 30, it says, then the disciples returned to Jesus and they told him about all that they had done and taught. So they go out and then in verse 30, they come back Uh sandwiched in the middle is a weird story that doesn't seem to fit, which is why some scholars think this is weirdly happening. Which is the death of John the Baptist. The death of John the Baptist. And it seems to come out of nowhere and a weird segue into this weird thing that doesn't seem like it has anything to do with anything. Uh-huh. But I think the proper way to read this is that what Mark is sandwiching together, the going out of disciples to preach the gospel and to do all the rest that comes with that, and the coming back of the disciples back to Jesus, smack in the middle is the consequence of discipleship, or the very real possible consequence of discipleship, Mm -hmm. which is that if you do this, you actually might lose your head. Right. And that there could be consequence, and the world will reject you. And so he, he properly sandwiches the martyrdom of John the Baptist in between the going out and the coming back of disciples proclaiming the word. Mm. Because he's trying to prove, again, to a community who is facing down some real uh, persecution and some real trial, um, who might be terrified of proclaiming the gospel, or who might think, man, if that's the consequence, we did something wrong or it didn't right. work right, saying, no, this is the, sometimes this is the way of discipleship, right. and that's okay. Right. Um, so I think that's an important point. All right, everybody, Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and our Sunday School teacher is Dr. Scott Powell. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. In our next episode, we will talk about the rest of Mark chapter 6, and then we'll dive into chapter 7 through 10. That episode will include a recording of the readings from Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. But if you want, feel free to read the rest of Mark chapter 6 and then dive right into chapter 7 through 10, and you'll be ready for next week. We'll see you then.